I, I couldn't understand in my head why everyone was going, I'm going to be this amount of revenue. I'm like, all you are is just churning money over. Stop going for this. Talk to me about your EBIT. Talk to me about your profit. Talk to me about cost of sale. It was just focusing on the right things. I did not focus on revenue. I focused on uh, profit, employing the best people, paying them what they wanted and treating them well. Welcome to Long-Term Thinking for Business Success, a show for and by business owners. Each episode will explore how to beat the odds and create a sustainable business and the life we've dreamt of. Today's guest is Neil Glentworth. Neil is an experienced global leader, entrepreneur and company director. He's the founder and managing partner of Dunn Medfor, a specialist advisory and assurance organization dealing with the most complex challenges in a digital and data-driven world. He's also the founder and chair of the GWI Group. Neil grew this business from his kitchen table into a national professional services company with a team of over 50 and a passionate advocate for open and transparent government. Neil is also the executive chairman of Redmond Solutions, a specialist in powering a more effective and accountable government. And that's not all. Prior to joining the private sector, Neil spent his formative years in senior leadership roles within the military and received several noteworthy recommendations for his service. During his military career, Neil supported the social and economic stability of multiple countries, delivering critical services in the face of extreme risk to underpin domestic, foreign and defence policy. Hi Neil, welcome to the Long-Term Thinking for Business Success podcast and thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much Rick and I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Great, thank you. As I mentioned in the introduction, you've had a very broad and deep experience in various sectors and industries. However, given the focus of this podcast is really around creating business success through long-term thinking, I'd really appreciate it if we could focus today's discussion predominantly on the GWI group. Is that okay with you? Yeah, that's no problem at all. Just to start things off, can you tell us a bit about the GWI group? What's the change you want to make? Or to put that another way, What's the vision you're trying to deliver and who do you hope to help? That's a cracking question to kick off. So look, right at the top of the list, it's about integrity and impartial advice. I don't work in GWI on a day-to-day level, but what I started off and what I have left in terms of a legacy is around that really unbiased advice, that genuine independent perspective that takes integrity super seriously and has done and is renowned for that. So integrity in terms of what you're trying to achieve for your clients, I appreciate the position of integrity, but what are the specific services or solutions you're trying to deliver? Or what's the change you're trying to make for your clients? And also, who is the ideal client that you work with? The change we're always trying to deliver is to provide an insight, to inspire people to act to offer something that gives a different perspective. At its heart, GWI and and the wider group is a data specialist, and they were a data specialist long before it was sexy and cool, long before people were talking. In fact, I vividly remember in the early days knocking on doors, as it were, trying to say you should care about data and your insights, and people just closing the door in my face, as it were, and saying, why would I care? 
what am I trying to, or what are we trying to offer? We're trying to make sure that it is unbiased insights, that it is actually based in evidence. And often that can be brokering the inconvenient truth about a very complex subject. The more complex the problem, the more interesting. In terms of ideal clients, GWI has a really strong track record in a lot of public policy areas, very complex public policy areas. That's everything from public safety to child protection and looking at the data and insights. But across the board, its real success is complex uh, problems from ASX-listed companies right through to public sector. I would say the ideal client is somebody who is looking to have a genuine insight and solve a very complex problem. Thinking back to the origins of the business, is that always the objectives and the vision you had, or has it developed and changed? The genesis of the business was me arriving in Australia, taking a job inside of the public sector initially, incredibly naively, because essentially even serving in the army, I'd been a public servant. And I had a very naive view and repeatedly being told that my opinion was wrong or it was uh, incorrect. And I was calling out a particular really big issue at the time. And somebody actually said to me, if you think you're so clever, go put your name on it. And originally GWI was called my surname because I was, I don't know, arrogant maybe at the time or naive that I went out and I said, okay, I will put my name on it. And what I set about doing there is essentially telling the truth, highlighting what needed to be said, even at the most inconvenient time. And what I immediately saw is that there was an enormous opportunity for people to gain insights from their data that told them actually what was going on. And that really was the genesis. It wasn't a, it wasn't a pretty thing, the way it started. And, and certainly it was scrapping for a long time. That's really interesting. It reminds me of Jim Collins, the researcher and business writer, and his perspective of what things make great companies. In his research, he found that one of the first things that any company needs to do is face the brutal facts and avoid having their head in the sand. So it really sounds like you've shown many people the abyss and then said, do you dare to jump? It would be fair to say, and I've come full circle on that as well, I I became almost conformist for a while as the company grew. And then I realized that the value proposition that was originally on the table and my own value proposition was about saying what I see. And that really is where I now find myself. The business now does that in a much more professional way than I was ever able to do. That's a great segue to my next question. I find that as business owners, and I appreciate your role has changed, and we'll come to that in a moment, as business owners, we often forget to celebrate our achievements and wins. So thinking back over the success of the GWI Group and the achievements you've managed to create, what are you most proud of and why? It's a difficult one to answer, right, in terms of there is a personal, there is a professional, and there's probably an altruistic one there. So personally, I'm a school dropout. 15 years old. That was the end of my formal education. And I've always thought laterally about problems and I've always questioned the why of something. So personally, I'm glad I was able to validate that I I, I had something to offer in terms of looking at really complex problems. 
professionally, it's obviously been great. I wanted to break a cycle in my own family and a whole range of reasons. And I never in my life saw myself as any sort of entrepreneur or starting a business. That was never in my DNA or in my plan. More altruistically, I like being in a place that just deals with facts and truth and honesty. The truth will always keep you honest. I like being in a place where you might not like what I have to say, but that's the truth. That's the reality. And I like being quite definitive in those things. And the great thing about data is it doesn't care about your emotions. It just deals with the cold, hard truth. And that is a very useful quality in today's world where large amounts of things are ruled by emotion. And often people think it's quite comforting to actually look at the facts and deal with those facts because those facts matter um, and they can matter to preserve the quality of somebody's life. I talked about some of the client base and the rewarding thing is looking at data and assisting the most vulnerable in society. That's a pretty awesome uh, thing to do. Some of the work that GWI has done in that space is it makes me incredibly proud. It's quite surprising your story as a high school dropout. I'm assuming you joined the military career fairly on in your life then and spanning that arc of your military career without any expectation of becoming an entrepreneur. But post-military, you've obviously moved into business and then into leadership roles. I'm sure is testament to the experience and training that a military career does give to people. It certainly provides a perspective and all things are different. I have a slightly different take in some ways. The military does provide enormous insights in terms of uh, leadership and experience, but it's a command and control environment. And I don't mean about shouting. Business is very different. Whilst there are some transferable skills, there are some amazing leaders in business. Uh, and we have to be careful. Ex-military people do is that they know everything about leadership. They know some things uh, and they're handy to have around, but not all the skills are transferable. It's about thinking that through. For the GWI side of things, the military mindset played a part, but not a major part. I was more just commenting on the fact that it, it allows people to mature in different ways and bring out the best of them. I imagine your values will either partly go back to your military experience and probably to some of your childhood experience. But the fact that all of your work you do now is values driven and is still focused on service I'm sure is testament to all those experiences combined. Yeah, absolutely. Let's jump back again. So today you're chairman of GWI Group and it's moved from GWI to a group of companies now. You founded the business, as I said earlier, in 2008 at your kitchen table. Can you talk to us a little bit about the journey to go from being an individual person working at your kitchen table to now the chairman of the group and what that means on a day-to-day -day basis for you? Yeah, absolutely. So look, the kitchen table thing is more than that. In the GWI head office, there's a piece of the kitchen table that is actually there uh, and framed in there. And it was it's one of those stark reminders. And, and I actually have a piece of that at home here as well, it, very worn out where nappies were changed and kids were sick and the whole range of things. When the business was started, I, I, I vividly remember sitting at the end of the kitchen table um, and I would basically write lots of emails at night and I'd put them on timer. So they got sent during the day. And I remember that. So it looked like I was in the office during the day. I'd do all the normal thing, which is do the books and everything. I would then do all the client work. 2 a.m. would come around, go and get a bit of sleep and you rinse and repeat seven days a week. 
that period was incredibly hard and it was an incredibly brutal time of a learning curve. Going back to my previous life, I didn't understand cash flow. I didn't understand profit and loss. They were terms. There was a stark reality of starting and running a business. What was really evident in those early days was the amount of nonsense that people used to talk about businesses and starting a business. And it was often delivered by people who had no experience in that space. So I look back now and remember them really well. They were a very formative amount of time. And my kids were very young and I wouldn't want to do it again. I can relate to that because at 53, I'm back in a startup doing some of that type of work. Not as much because I have a team, but it's definitely there. Just to go a little bit deeper on running a small business. As you know, an SME requires a dedication to being resilient and a depth of perseverance to push through things. In that period and over time, how did you go about developing the mental muscle to drive those changes? I expect it wasn't easy to consistently work till one or two o'clock in the morning and then get up at 6am to help with the family and then continue to be effective at work. So what is it that you did and you could be doing again today to ensure you've built a resilience muscle and remain resilient today? I was very self-reflective throughout this process. I was acutely aware of my weaknesses throughout this period of time. I would say I learned quickly and I acknowledged my weaknesses quickly. The way I built resilience through this time was that I needed to be cheeky. I needed to be constantly pushing and I needed to inspire others around me to move forward. And whether that was clients, whether that was in sales and whether that was team members, whoever it was I interacted with and what I aim to do whilst preserving that value of integrity, I remained incredibly optimistic by pushing through and I would often seek forgiveness, not permission. I rapidly realized what not to waste my time on because when you start a business, there is so much time wasting on things that just don't matter and are largely irrelevant, but there is lots and lots of noise telling people to do all this stuff. And it's just a waste of time. Can I explore that a little bit further? You started by saying that you were extremely self-reflective, which for a young guy, and I assume you were relatively young given you had a new family, being self-reflective is not necessarily a skill we've developed. Given that, was there anything you did to facilitate it? For example, were you journaling every day or would you end a meeting and then take some time to think about the meeting, to reflect on what worked or didn't work? Fundamentally, my question is, what was it that drove and built your self-reflection skills? This has been a journey to understand this. I'll give you a quick synopsis. And, and the way to answer that is in the last few years where I was still working in the business and I was the managing director, we did a lot of these strengths and weaknesses type things. What the team actually said at the time is that my ability is see a perspective from the client, never my own perspective. So my ability to almost sit in their chair, look through their eyes and look at what was being said and what I was saying. Most of my analyzing I would do when I walked out of room was not what I thought, but what they thought and, and what it meant to them. So I would always go into the room um, in any situation and thinking about what does it mean to that person? What do they want? And what are they going to get out of it? When I walked out, I was always thinking, okay, did they achieve what they wanted? I never focused on what I wanted 
I was always of the view, if I can achieve what they're after, that will achieve my goal. I quickly worked out, be judged by the clients you turn down, not just the ones you accept. I wanted to work with really good people and really good clients. Empathy, which is fundamentally what you're talking about, being able to appreciate the perspective of the people you're working with. As your team grew, how did you transition that empathy skill, that self-reflection, and really considering it from the perspective of your audience or your customers? How did you train and develop that skill in staff so that that perspective would continue to drive the success of the GWI group? In a word, badly. That really is the result. And this goes to a lot of flaws in my character. One of the big flaws is not being able to walk past something that I think is wrong. I say that's a flaw because literally, if I see something's wrong, I'm going to fix it. Maybe I don't give people time to actually correct a mistake. I was not very good at that. What I was good at, though, is focusing on what people and their passion and attracting the right type of people and then empowering and what I know about is empowering other people. And very quickly, the the art of saying, this is what I want, but not telling them how to do that. Very quickly, those people that I brought into the business managed me and they worked out, that's what he's good at, put him over there. Now we'll do this. And a lot of it was about giving people the freedom to get on with what they were good at, but providing the right support. Earlier, you mentioned at the start of the business, you were really good at focusing on the top priorities. I'm sure you've experienced, and I know I have, and I've also discussed it with many business owners. We get so caught up in the day-to-day that often when I look at my to-do list, I think, is this really the most impactful work? It sounds like, from what you said earlier, that you're actually pretty good at defining what are the impactful actions and activities you should have focused on. Is that just something that came naturally to you, or is that a skill and an approach that you had to develop and work on? It was very quickly looking at what's going on and listening to other people about their mistakes and watching people flounder around. I actually targeted my time very carefully. I made a, a conscious effort to educate myself around contemporary topics and make sure that I focused Uh, solely on those things. So data in healthcare, data in public safety, data in corporate governance and risk, and make sure I understood those things. It was all about targeting and constantly educating myself and simple things like bookkeeping. I did not start a business to be a bookkeeper, right? So I'm going to pay a bookkeeper right from the word and have the discipline in place. And that's like the number one thing. It's madness. Let somebody who is professional at that do that. Don't get involved in that. I often think that as business owners, we pick up things either because we have a limiting belief that nobody can do it as well as we can, or I'll just do it. It's easier, it's quicker, and it's cheaper. This makes us end up being the cheapest employees in the business. And I think it's just the wrong way to think about it. I think as business owners, we all should look at our processes and activities based on creating value for our clients, the team, and then the business. If we use that lens, we can be far more effective. I realized, and even before I came across that wide saying of revenue is vanity, et cetera, et cetera, I I couldn't understand in my head why everyone was going, I'm going to be this amount of revenue. I'm like, all you are is just churning money over. Stop going for this. Talk to me about your EBIT. Talk to me about your profit. 
talk to me about cost of sale. And so again, it was just focusing on the right things. I did not focus on revenue. I focused on uh, profit, employing the best people, paying them what they wanted, treating them well. I see this today. We've got a real culture of this, of revenue. This is madness, this obsession with revenue. I get bewildered by owners that just drive for growth. And it seems to be growth for the sake of growth, for no real purpose or end goal. We believe in driving sustainable success. And yes, we need to continually renew that growth, but not for growth's sake, as that can be a path to no success. Absolutely. Despite all the careful planning we do, unexpected things always happen. Thinking back over the years of building GWI, I'm curious to understand and hear about an event or something that caught you by surprise, something that didn't happen the way you thought it was, the way you'd planned it out? If so, what was it? And how did you adjust your business strategy to achieve the success you have had? I vividly remember when I signed the lease to the first office we had. And like all of organisations, first office, it wasn't pretty, but it did did the job. And I just signed the lease and I didn't think anything about it other than it was there. And then two events happened that really struck me that this was a lot more than just a business. The first one was when we needed a printer and a photocopy, all in one multifunction machine. And I remember basically having to sign almost, it was in blood, your house, your everything, this long-term lease. And I remember just going, oh my God, this is, they've got details in my bank, my mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. And at this point, I'd remortgage the house, credit cards, macked out, all of the normal sort of stuff. But the second one that was more amusing that really caught me off guard, and this sounds really bad, is I, I leased an office that had a toilet, a single toilet, right next to the working area, because that's what you do when you start a business. And then I was employing some women, and they were like, what the, this toilet was a real big issue. And I just was so blind to that issue. It suddenly dawned on me, I've really got to think different things through. I've really got to stop at that point. And I think there were lots of other issues like the time bookkeeper and we had some issues and we had to find $80,000 overnight and et cetera. There were all sorts of other issues, let me tell you. But those are the ones that stick in my head because they're the ones that I was completely blind to. That taught me a lot about what is it I'm missing. And that was that self-reflection. So what does what do I miss in the business? And ever since then, I've really tried hard to go, let me think this even further. Because I was good at thinking through clients' eyes. I was clearly crap at thinking through employee eyes. I imagine though you learned that that skill as well yep. over time. Based on the premise that our most valuable learnings anywhere in life, but obviously we'll focus on business, typically come from a setback or hardship. Can you tell us a story of an adverse event or a challenge that led to a positive change in the GWI group and what you learned from that experience? Vividly remember it. It was late in a week over a Thursday and the bookkeeper we had at the time and some of the financial advice that we had at the time, that I'll put it there, uh, was quite flawed, basically. Within the space of 24 hours, it was clear that we had to find $80,000. And it was early in the days, it was ATO, it was a whole range of things. It, it was very early days. I remember feeling that my world had just fallen in and collapsed beneath me. 
And I remember going home again, we were mortgaged beyond belief, credit card beyond belief, three small kids at home. And I thought I had absolutely and utterly failed because there was no way that we were able to get out of this hole. We did get out of that hole and we got out of that hole through thinking through it very logically, working through it. And these are words you won't hear often. The ATO were brilliant and we worked through that problem and we got through it and it really taught me about cash. The group CEO now, who is a major shareholder of the business, he would tell you that what is the one thing that Neil is going to focus on? It's cash. And from that point onwards, I have had my eye so far on cash flow. One of the big things I'm really proud of is in my whole time in business, I've never missed a beat on payments, whether it be salary, whether it be suppliers. If I engage another small business in the supply chain, I'll pay them. I'll pay them. Never miss a beat. And it it was the best lesson ever. And I'm so glad it happened to me. At the time, it was horrendous. But understanding cash, it surprises me now and other businesses that I look at still don't understand it and, and how vital it is to a business. That was a lesson. God, that was brutal. Brutal. Yeah. One of the main reasons businesses go under is because of cash challenges. Not because they're not profitable and successful businesses, they're just over-leveraged and can't make their payments. So just to drill a bit further down into that, using the context of cash management, often a business's success is put down to how they set up the systems and processes to manage the business. Coming out of the cash challenges you had to deal with, you put in place different processes and systems to manage cash. What then did you define as a minimum cash that you wanted to have available? Often when you research this question, the suggestion is having three months of cash flow or something like that. So in the processes and systems that you embedded, do you take it down to the level of detail that set new benchmarks for the business in the context of what are the minimum cash requirements you need in the business? Again, cracking question and a really important one. So here's the irony, first of all data company, all about insights, all about honest truth and stuff like that. And in the early days, we weren't that good at basically spruiking our own value proposition. And that was just a massive wake up call. So the very first thing is I wanted to know, and I was happy to sacrifice things and I did sacrifice things, people. I want to know in detail the next 10 weeks of cash flow ins and outs every week. I want to know, and and to this day, I want to know the next 10 weeks, cash in, cash out, and I want a detailed report. And I want to be able to scenario if that person didn't pay or if that was brought forward, what does that mean? Uh, and that was the thing. The, first, the next thing I put in place was a floor. What I mean by that, and at, at the time it was, I think it was $100,000, which was, it was considered zero. So we would say if you were at zero, that meant there was 100,000 plus. The other thing is we had very tight restrictions on any overdraft, which we used very much in the early on times, but we set us a floor. And that meant that the alarm bell would sound at, I think it was 100K, could be 80, I'm not sure. It would sound at that point, and that was the red alert. Above that, we would have levels of alarm, if you like, right down, but never below. And literally, you, we stopped doing things. We made changes. And the discipline in there, which was unpopular at the time, because 
when it got to that level, I went, nope, we're not doing that. We're not employing that. We're not extending that contract. We're not doing that. That was it. That discipline is what gave us forward motion in the business because it was really disciplined in terms of cash management. In the context of the infinite game that business is, it's fundamentally about making sure we've got enough resources to continue to play the game tomorrow. To follow on our discussion regarding your cash management, you mentioned a number that you wanted to have as reserve. I'm really less interested in the actual number, whether it be 80 or 100,000. What I'm more interested in is what was the criteria you set that number against? How did you define what were the cash reserves you wanted to have available? Was it so that you could make sure you had enough cash available to cover any accounts payables for the next 10 weeks? Or was it based on the cash flow you needed to cover payroll? Given, as I'm sure you can appreciate, in service businesses like ours, our staff is our biggest expense. Just to restate my question, based on the cash reserves you set as a minimum, was that to cover your accounts payable? Or was it really much more important to cover the payroll that you had coming up? First and foremost, it was about integrity. So I could look all the staff in the eye and know that they could be paid. And at the time, we had quite a few contractors as well, as you do there. Everyone could be paid. The, the general rule of thumb is you're carrying three months, right? And, and that's a good one. But it waxed and waned. The, the driver there actually was a percentage of revenue, um, and it was our liabilities over the, the coming 10 weeks, and so that I could ensure that any staff liability were, could be paid and we would never leave people without. I had a fundamental problem in, in that space, and, and, and that drove a lot of the behavior. So the primary driver was about people and obviously viability of the business. And that's always a, people always say, oh, it's always people first. Yes, it is. But if it's people first, you've got to have a sustainable business in order to make sure those people can be first. So there's a real balance there. And I tried to balance the two very well, business viability, so I could look after the people. Um, and, and I would put them right up there together. In a follow-up to your comments, you mentioned the tension in the early stages of your business between the integrity position you took to your clients and the perspective that you had on the inside of the business, and that that was challenged quite early on in the piece. As a preamble, we look at the main goal of marketing is to clearly express the purpose and commitment of the business. First, it's important to communicate these messages to the team then to the clients, and finally to potentially new clients. We talk about this as marketing on the inside versus marketing on the outside. And whatever proposition or promise or vision you have that you're pushing to the market, it first needs to resonate internally. Otherwise, the business starts to crumble because your own staff don't believe what you're talking about to the market. That's based on the methodology that as effective leaders, we need to clearly articulate and convey the vision and direction of the business to the team so that they understand the goals and can then work independently to achieve them. You mentioned some of this very early on in our conversation around how you developed and mentored your staff. So I'm really interested to understand as the business grew, what were some of the processes and routines that you would use to ensure your team clearly understood the vision and the values that drive the business and they would then keep that at the front of their mind so that when you weren't in the room, those values and the drive would still be upheld and taken to your clients? That's a good question because a lot of that was 
not formal in the early days because you, you, you'd like to think you think wax some values on the wall and everybody will follow them. What was really a crystal clear focus early on is it was always about service delivery first. So for instance, if we were doing any sort of activity, let's say internal, or if it was a sales activity, service delivery came first. And that was the driving thing. What we did, what we were paid for came above anything else. By doing that, that encouraged a real dedication and passion to the client and the team. The other thing is we employed people based on who they were, not what they'd done. So we had and still do really creative people who were really quite special in many ways, the way that they um, just threw themselves into the client's because everything was geared and supported around delivering for the clients. It was always about being better than anybody else for integrity, for data and insights. And that was the driving force. I suppose out of that, the, the values started to grow and appear, you know, in terms of integrity in our work, passion, commitment, those great things. But ultimately, everybody knew the most important thing was the client. And we were absolutely laser like folks. Still the businesses to this day. It's far simpler to maintain a common set of values when there's three people or eight people or maybe even 15 people in your team. As you approached 30 to 50 people, it gets harder and harder because the people are further and further away from you as the shining light of the values and vision of the business. As you grew, were there formal things that you did in the business to ensure that the values remained centered and everybody was clear on what they were? I realized. I was crap at that. I realized my value was solving problems and, and I transitioned professionally. I realized that my sort of real calling was dealing with the really complex problems and solving those and working with clients. I knew that my real flaw was my inability to really cultivate a team well one of the things I did very early on is I wanted to identify someone who could be my yang to my ying, if you like. I, I wanted somebody who was a mitigation to me. I wanted someone who was opposite to me. Um, one of the things I really realized in business growth early on is you need, you can't be everything. You need to recognize your weaknesses and you need to bring someone in and you need to bring them to the table with equity and the whole range of things. And one of the great things is I am deeply blessed by my founding and original business partner, what he brought to that business. And a large part of the big growth now is massively from his leadership, in particular dealing with people and the team. Thank you for that. A number of times in our conversation, you've mentioned your no-nonsense stating the brutal facts approach to the advice you've given to your clients. You've also mentioned how you've looked at data within the context of social and economic benefit and how your clients can leverage their data. I'm interested to understand, given that experience, how does GWI Group leverage your own data to drive the growth within the business? And how have you taken the same principles that you would use to solve a problem for your client to solve problems for GWI? One of the things that's in the DNA of the business now is we all do this. When you, you provide options for clients, do nothing, do this, and then there's a left the field one. One of the things that we do is we, or the business does, and we do this at the board level now, is we look at things 
in a very different way. What happens if this, what does this, how would we deal with that? What's the scenario in this occurring? And we're always looking for the obscure. We're always looking for the impossible. And what does that mean? And, and how would we handle that? And how would we be bold and brave in that situation? And COVID is a great example. We had to do some really difficult things, like every single business, but we had the fidelity in the business to tune the business with cash, clients, everything to get through that period of time and look after our team as well through that period. And that is because the business was always willing to look introspective. And that started from there is what is it we can do better? How can we solve the problem? And that, and that stems from that early cash flow crisis, the, the photocopier, the toilet, all of those things built up so that we could have the brutal conversations and internal to the organization, people felt that they could put forward their ideas, their genuine hey, why don't we look at doing this great idea? The most powerful words you can ever say in business is, I don't know, because you'll be surprised what other people will provide you. For my final question, you're now the chairman of the group. We haven't really explored what the role of chairman is, but I'm happy to guess that a key part of it is looking to define the next 10 years and the strategy to get to the next stage of growth within the business. In considering this long-term perspective, what are some of the key strategic initiatives that you're looking to implement to continue to drive the success of the GWI group and what you hope they will achieve. The first thing is, like Chairman, it sounds all great and fancy, right? It's just a label. What I am there is somebody who understands the business, understands the clients and the problems, and I'm now an external perspective. The key strategic perspective for the business is around um, preserving that value proposition um, going forward through growth. Um, like all companies, if you look at the GWI website, it's all about impact. And there is a lot of altruistic behavior on there. There is a lot of doing things for other. Long before anybody else was talking about things, we were doing those and getting on with it, whether it be gender, whether it be environmental, because it was things that mattered. It was things that made a difference. And it was actually recognizing that a graduate employee gets out of bed in the morning, not just so they can earn money, so they can actually feel fulfilled. And it was recognizing that. So one of the strategic objectives is creating a workforce where people feel fulfilled. And in a time where there's a lot of uh, questions about professional services and in the knowledge economy in Australia, it's really important that transparency and accountability in business is absolutely there and is crystal clear. So strategic growth is about a brand that people go, you know what, I, I trust what they do. They act ethically and they always act with integrity. And that has been the one thing that I've been really proud of over the years in, in a whole range of areas. We treat it as best we can. We do everything we can to the point where it has cost us work because we are so transparent, so be it. I would much rather that be, and that's been over many years. So strategic growth is about reputation and preserving that reputation and doing the right thing. That's a great place to end. And it's a testament to the power of not just having values within a business, but then using those values to drive everything within the business. The types of work you do, the clients you work with, and the way you approach those values with your team. So Neil, thank you again for joining me today and I look forward to watching the continued success of the GWI Group. 
Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it.